nearly everyone has had a job that just simply sucked. In this podcast, we dive into the terrible workplaces that exist, either due to customer interactions, horrible bosses, bad culture, or environment. Tune in each episode to hear interviews and news stories of why work sucks. Hello, and this is another podcast called Work Sucks. I'm your host, Brian Lamar. Every week on Work Sucks, we talk about different things uh, about our job that, that just suck, that make it suck. Whether it's coworkers, lack of parking, commute, safety hazards, bad bosses, all that kind of stuff. There's so many things that can make work suck. Anyways, uh, as promised, each week we're going to have a guest. This week we have Kelly. Kelly uh, is calling into us to tell us a little bit about a job that sucked for her. Hey, Kelly, how's it going? Hey, Brian, I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about a job that sucked for you in the past. Yes. So I'm going to go all the way back to 2007. Um, To date, I've spent over 20 years in the mental health field. Uh, The majority of that time has been working with nonprofit organizations, but At this time in my life, back in 2007, I quit my full-time career and went to grad school um, and decided to work at a for-profit substance use disorder treatment center that was nearby the university I was attending. So this treatment center was an inpatient, so patients typically stayed 7 to 28 days. I was working 32 hours over the weekend shift, so that looked like second shift on Friday, a double shift on Saturday and a split shift on Sunday. So that really left us as the clinicians to be a one-stop shop. So we were responsible for um, entering patients, whether they're dropped off by an ambulance or by their families, doing pre-authorizations with the insurance companies, doing intakes with the patients, searching their belongings, getting them settled in, running group therapy all day, um, really we we were just a handful of staff on site during that time frame. Okay, so you mentioned, and and I'm not a mental health professional at all. Mm-hmm. I may be a mental patient sometimes, but I'm not <laughs> a mental health professional by any means. So when you start talking about your career uh, and all the years that you've got in this career, and most of it's nonprofit, but then you you mentioned that you started working for a for profit mm-hmm. substance abuse. Uh, you know, the thing is. I get it. I get it. Health, the healthcare field is a for-profit thing. Otherwise, you know, why be? Why would somebody toil through all of the problems to go be a doctor, to go be a nurse? You know, in, unless they were going to make some money. So here's the thing: is is uh, and, and we're, we're going to just ask some industry questions real quick, but then we'll get back to your specific sucky yeah. job. Um, but is it a, a common occurrence? to have like a for-profit like, like like substance abuse counseling and, and a treatment center? I, th- I would say yes. Um, it might vary by state that you live in, but there are definitely for-profit organizations that um, get money from, think about insurance companies, privatized um, insurance companies, the managed behavioral care, 
um, that's where their funding comes from. So you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get on a board to be approved by, let's say, Blue Cross Blue Shield mm-hmm. or Aetna. So they all have different expectations and qualifications that they would require for them to pay for their patient to be at your center. Okay. And so, I, I mean, I guess if we dug down a little bit in the philosophical reasoning behind for-profit or not-profit, whatever, mm-hmm. I, I mean, what, where, where do you fall on that scale? And, and I, I, don't, I don't want you to, to feel pressured into answering either way. If you, if, if you don't have a, a, a definitive uh, answer for this question, that's fine. But uh, what, what, in, in, regards, in regards to, say, let's just say specifically mental health. Uh, for profit or non profit where, where do you think that uh, that scale lies as far as where where they help people i think there are amazing people who work for both organizations, but as you funnel up to the leaders and the people who the CEOs and the CFOs, um, it seems to change. And in, this is just my experience. I've worked at two for-profit institutions or organizations, and they were both the worst experiences when I thought about coming on this podcast, which which one I would talk about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you had, you had something to choose from. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really think it comes down to what's the bottom line. And again, this is just my experience, but in the nonprofit, the bottom line is typically serving the constituents or the people that we are identified as the people we're serving versus am I making a profit and turning money over to the owners of this company? So there is a bottom line for mm-hmm. for profit, and there could be a degradation of services. But at the same time, sometimes I think of not nonprofits, and I know nonprofits do. There's a lot of cash flow in in, in some nonprofits, but mm-hmm. uh, so, sometimes I think, okay, well, if I go say if I was going to go get mental health care, if I go to a like a facility that's a for profit f- facility, if I'm if I'm thinking this through. Mm-hmm. I would automatically think maybe I was going to get a little bit better care than a nonprofit because I you you automatically want to think of nonprofit as not having enough money or staff or you know right. materials to to deal with. Uh, mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? I think that's a accurate thought. A lot of people would have. Um, I I haven't seen that to be true in my experience because think about a nonprofit is putting all of their money back into the organization. So there have been nonprofits I've worked for that I made very little money um, and we struggled to maintain some of the physical things, but the care and the resources were being given back to the people that we were serving. Um, where in a for-profit, it might look nicer on the outside and have more flashy resources, but also you have to think some of that funding is going into other people's pockets, not back into the organization. Right. Okay. So there are some serious philosophical different differences yeah. when it comes to that kind of care. All right. And well, there- so Oh, go, I, I would, go ahead. Sorry. I would say there are amazing people that work at both. So I, I think where we choose to work and, and how we choose to work, there are amazing people that work at for-profit organizations. There's just um, a different mentality on what happens at the end of the day. Okay. I technically work for, in my nine-to-five job, a, mm-hmm. a nonprofit organization. But mm-hmm. I can tell you, though, that uh, there, there are plenty of resources, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of resources yeah. that go in my particular industry. But I'm not allowed to talk about it on my podcast. <laughs> but uh, so anyways, uh, let's get back to, to, to your job that, yeah. that sucked. What made it suck so bad? 
Um, I would like to say I or start off by sharing that I was hired on the spot over the phone, which should have been a red flag. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but as a eager, unemployed facing grad student, I was happy to have a job opportunity that met the scheduling needs that I had. And so if you can picture this old farmhouse that has can been converted into a treatment center. So it still looks like a house from the outside. You walk in the main lobby and it still looks like um, what a front room would look like in a house. It's just been turned into a lobby. Um, now, now was that was that due to the fact that uh, people were going into this place for like counseling or treatment and it was supposed to be incognito or just because it was an old house, they decided to I think it was the house that they had acquired and they built onto it over the years. So it was Uh more about the location of where it was um, and what they had turned this dwelling into. Instead of building a brand new state-of-the-art facility, they kind of converted this existing structure. Okay. Cracky floors, creaky doors, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Okay. We're getting the picture here. And so uh, when I first joined the organization, I um, was greeted by some of the other staff members who worked there. And on day one was thrown right into, and now it's group time. So we're going to run group and you're going to help because a staff member had called out that day. So Hmm. here I was um, thinking I was going to get an orientation process and was thrown right into take this stack of worksheets and go run group with about 30 patients. Um, and I came to learn that the person who greeted me was not a mental health professional, but the facilities person oh boy. who also sometimes freelanced as a group leader. So um, that was interesting to me that they just had people fill in where they needed them. That old custodial intuition can really help out with uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So there was just a lot of... Um, Red flags that you notice when what, if you look at a website or a brochure and it says, here's all the amazing things that are being offered at this treatment center, and here's the type of um, clinical treatment you'll receive, here are, here's pictures of this beautiful piece of property and what your room will look like, and then you show up and it really is just kind of a shithole old house. Mm. Um And that we're not running that type of treatment. We are using old worksheets and sitting around in a room and having people fill out this worksheet and um, really watching people who need help and are struggling not get the kind of help they're promised they're going to receive. Okay. Uh, And after they've, paid good money or their insurance (laughs) company has paid good money Mm -hmm. for a treatment. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in certain states, um, you know, your insurance will only send you to treatment so many times before they stop giving you that option. And there are people who take out a second mortgage on their home. Um, These, so thinking about a month in a treatment center could cost between 16 to $30,000. Okay. Um, And so it's a lot of money. Um, And I watched them pack so many people into this house where they were converting storage closets into bedrooms. They were taking office space away from clinicians and making them bedrooms. So really, if they could turn it into a bed, and that's another head and another um, 
payment, they were gonna make it happen. So it really became about doubling the amount of patients that they could fit into their space and not multiplying the staff that needed they needed to uh, really provide support and resources to these people. Yeah, I, you know, when, when you think about a facility like that, overcrowding is never something that you want to hear. Uh, you know, it, like yeah. a it's like a military barracks or mm-hmm. maybe uh, maybe a ferry ride or something like that. Yeah. You know, you want to you want to get butts and seats, heads and beds, that kind of thing. But um, mm-hmm. it seems like if you don't have enough staff or trained personnel, it, it only brings problems. Right, and uh, and if I can point out, this is a mixed gendered adult population, and so um, when we went from maybe having thirty, right, thirty thirty ish beds, at some capacity, we got up to sixty beds, and they had one security guard that worked the weekend shift in the evening time, and two or three staff like myself who were there with a couple nurses. And so that's a lot of people to manage. Yeah. And and not only that, uh, it it becomes from a mental health standpoint, uh, a problem there to get the Mm -hmm. correct care. But now it's kind of a security problem as well, safety problem. Yes. Brian, the amount of times that we would just lock ourselves in the medical center and call the police because they became, there were physical altercations um, and that we were not put in a place to um, diffuse that physical altercation that the police would have to show up almost every Saturday um, sometimes twice if it was um, an especially active weekend. But then also people are sneaking out. Um, people are having things dropped off and delivered in the yard. And there's just not, there wasn't opportunity to really secure the facility and keep it safe for other patients. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, that, I think that uh, that this sounds like a tinderbox for problems. So yeah. can, can you remember a time where, you were completely in fear for your own safety? There were a couple times. Um, one in particular, there was one psychiatrist on staff, and she was um, an elderly woman who had some mobility issues. She didn't get around very well. She was um, kind of stationed in a chair in the nurse's station, and we would walk through there sometimes to get to our belongings and a patient was getting very um, agitated and aggressive towards her. And I could tell that she was getting scared and she didn't feel like she could defend herself. And so I stepped in to support her and some other folks stepped in, but that could have turned into a really difficult situation had he had this patient um, lunged at her or, or got, physically aggressive towards her. And so we kind of pushed him out of the space and locked him out. Um, But there were multiple times that people were full on physically being aggressive and fighting with one another. And we would just secure ourselves in that space and call the police. Yeah. I mean, because when you go into a treatment facility for substance abuse, you're, you're not feeling your best. You're not the all American Mm -hmm. kid at this point. You're, Mm -hmm. you're, uh, you're, you're hurting in, yeah. in more ways than one. So I can imagine nerves are on edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And it really, um, you know, people, people were also detoxing at that time. So some people were um, 
sequestered to their rooms and and not in a place where they could come out. But when they started to feel better, they'd wake up from this fog and be like, what the actual hell is, where am I? What's happening here? Oh, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, I uh, have this, the, the foggiest idea of what that's like, you know, coming out of like mm-hmm. a, a stupor from, you know, being uh, on a substance for quite some time. But uh, I, I, my my only experience with that is um, when I, I busted my Achilles uh, a few years back mm-hmm. and the doctor, I, he wasn't paying attention to my medicines. Yeah. And he had me on a couple of different painkillers. And uh, one was kind of a dangerous one. Uh, you know, you don't think of it as dangerous because, you know, mm-hmm. the doctor gives it to you. You trust the doctor. Right. But it's hydrocodones. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he prescribed me four hydrocodones a day uh, for mm-hmm. nine months. And, I, you know, by the end of that nine months, you know, I I was taking them like I was supposed to. I thought mm-hmm. I was doing the right thing. But at the end of that nine months, when I got cut off, uh, I realized I had a problem. Mm-hmm. And nobody around me enjoyed being around me at that point. Right. And, and no matter, and I knew, I knew that I had a problem. And uh, I didn't go seek professional help because I, you know, honestly, I didn't realize that I needed it, but I probably right. really did. And I probably put my, um, my, my wife and kids through hell because yeah. I was just, I, I was always on edge and it took a long time to get back from there. Mm-hmm. And Brian, I appreciate you sharing that because people often think about the type of person who enters a substance use treatment facility must be a drug addict or must be a bad person. But your example is exactly what the majority of happened to the majority of our patients from a 16 year old athlete who is injured in at their sport and the doctor put them on medicine. I remember a mom having dental surgery and the doctor putting them on medicine. Um, even though it was 2007 and 2008, someone who was a first responder in the 9-11 disaster, they were still hooked on their pain medicine and seeking treatment to detox from that. And so these are everyday people with lives and families and careers and people don't, doctors and dentists don't caution people about how addictive these medicines are. Yeah. And, you know, when I got to the end of my rehabilitation with my Achilles and all that. Um, and the doctor told me uh, that I was done with my medicine because, mm-hmm. because I, I brought the empty bottle. And I mean, I had a, I had a few left and I said, mm-hmm. Hey, I need a refill on this. And he says, Oh, well, Brian, you shouldn't be taking those anymore. I'm like, well, why not? You gave them to me. I, I've been taking them. Like you told me. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the types of uh, the medicine that he gave me, there was, there's an inflammatory agent to it as well. So I'm thinking, no, it's, it's healing me, you know? Right. So, um, so I, I never questioned it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and honestly, when he, when he cut me off and said, well, I, I can't give you anymore. I felt like I damn near went insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and this, even though I knew that I had a problem, I would slip into this, not knowing that I was being, sharp with people, not knowing mm-hmm. that I was just sitting there craving and jonesing for something that I couldn't mm-hmm. get and everything. It, it could have gone bad. Um, right. Luckily for me, it didn't, uh, yeah. but it's only by luck. It, it really is. I mean, had I known a drug dealer that, that served those kinds of mm-hmm. medicines or whatever you want to call it, pills, uh, I might've taking that person up on it. Now I'm breaking the law, you know, before, before it was innocent. Now, you know, at this point, if I had known 
somebody who I could get the the medicine from, I would have gone and got it. And uh, yeah, I, like I said, I'm, I was just very lucky. And that's that's the mm-hmm. only difference between me and somebody that was in your facility is just luck. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it so quickly transitions from my doctor stopped prescribing this medication. I started buying these pills off the street. It became so expensive. It's cheaper to buy heroin and I can find heroin easier than finding these pills. And so it just so quickly transitions to that. Man, I I cannot imagine where my life would be had Mm -hmm. I gone down that road. Mm -hmm. Really different. Yeah. Luckily, I've always been afraid of drugs like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've been very scared of, scared of that. You know, and I I do want to thank, you know, certain entities in my life growing up, you know, I I know the the D.A.R.E. program has its, its merits in some places, but it's also got flaws. But Mm -hmm. growing up, I was made to be so afraid of cocaine and heroin and and meth and all that stuff. And I, and honestly, I'm, I'm I'm very grateful because that was a point where I never thought I'd be in my life that I might've actually, had I not had that fear instilled in me, I might have traveled that route. Right. But it takes me back to something you just said is we were taught as little kids in the 80s that street drugs are bad, don't do them. But like you said, but my doctor was giving this to me. So I thought it was helping me. Um, oh, yeah. My my dare officer never, never once mentioned. Right. Uh, I think I think Valium was mentioned one time when I was in mm-hmm. like fifth grade uh, because that had been co- that had become a drug of choice for like soccer moms back in them days. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think they, they started realizing it, but the dare program ended at like sixth grade or something. So mm-hmm. I, I got all the way through up to that age range and then yeah. had only been warned about the street drugs. Mm-hmm. Well, um, okay. So, so that, that was your, your sucky job. You, you had mm-hmm. uh, insurmountable odds to face. And also you were young in your career. <laughs> yes. And I will say that um, we were also bullied by the owners. So it was the weekend and they would just show up there. And if we didn't get the patient approved through the insurance company, so a pre-authorization gives them the weekend, if it was Friday or Saturday, it would approve that they would pay for the patient to stay there until Monday when the full process could be done. And if we didn't get that person admitted, I watched some of my colleagues and teammates get fired. Um, And so it also puts that fear of we were, uh, what I'm learning in grad school, and then what's happening in real treatment centers were very drastically different. So we were encouraged to just make up a diagnosis. We know they'll prove it if you say these things, stretch the, um, the medical condition a little bit, because we really need that person really needs to be here. So there's a part of you that thinks, yes, I really want this person to get help. And there's this other ethical part of you is like, but we're lying and making Mm. things up. So a little bit of a fabrication of maybe symptoms that Mm -hmm. are maybe not fabrication, that that might not be the word, but an embellishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I guess we're at the point of the interview where I usually ask people who've been in situations such as yourself, mm-hmm. can, do you, obviously there's going to be other people that coming up in their career field that, that experience this. What type of 
information or advice would you give somebody that finds themselves in your situation? Well, I think if it, if there is a patient or if I, when I was later in my life, when I was a clinician, I would never refer someone to a treatment center unless I went there and laid eyes on it myself, because things can look really great online or in brochures, but I, I need to talk to the other um, clinicians there. I need to look at reviews and not reviews that, um, you know, people make up online. I really need to know this is a quality treatment center that someone's going to be cared for and get the help that they need and not just be somewhere for 20 days filling out worksheets and listening to music on the radio and calling that music therapy. Um, So I think really doing your homework and making sure it's it's a quality treatment program. And as someone starting out in the field that Um, Something I learned much later in my life is that it's as much of me interviewing the organization and the company and the people I'll be working with as it is them interviewing me. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've I've said this a couple of times in jobs in the past that uh, I was I was interviewing my next boss as much as they Mm -hmm. were interviewing their next employee. Yeah. Yeah. Which is important. I mean, it's almost, you know, you're around your coworkers and, and your, your superiors and subordinates quite mm-hmm. a bit. And it's mm-hmm. almost like, a, it's almost like a, a relationship you get into them. It, yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't mean it that way, but it's, it's, it's as intense as a relationship that you would get into uh, to something with somebody if you hire them on and they're with you day in, day out for however long they're going to work there or you're mm-hmm. going to work there. So yeah, it's very important to make sure that you identify those red flags going into a situation. Absolutely. And it's okay to leave somewhere. I know they're like my gener, our generation was um, encouraged to stay lit. You don't want gaps in your resume. You don't want it to look like your job hopping, but there have been times I've worked somewhere for six months and have decided this isn't, my values don't match the values of this organization and it's time for me to leave. And if we can justify that in our job interviews, um, it made sense to people why I chose to leave so quickly. And so I think not feeling married to this idea that we have to stay somewhere for a couple of years because we don't want it to look bad on our resume. Right. Yeah. So you don't have to be stuck in one place. There's plenty yeah. of places that you can go where people understand that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, you're right. It is. There's a, uh, there's a little bit of when we were getting out of high school. I, I mean, I'm I'm in my 40s. I'm 43, and uh, when I was getting out of high school, I, I remember specifically teachers and guidance counselors saying, "Find you a good job and stick with it," you know. Yeah. And nowadays, I look at the stats. I think I saw the other day uh, the average 30 year old in the U.S. who started working around 17 or 18 has been through about 18 jobs. That's mm-hmm. average. And mm-hmm. I thought, well. I've stuck with jobs for a lot longer than that because I just thought I should for whatever right. reason. <laughs> now right. I'm kind of mad. Like I could have left. So, yeah. <laughs> and I think that is generationally like we're in that same age group and our parents, my mom had one job her entire adult. I like career. how you did that, by the way, <laughs> you didn't, you don't want to say your age, but you said we're in the same uh, z- zone here. Yes. <laughs> Both of our ages start with a four. Uh, but so, <laughs> They are, you know, our parents had a job and they stayed there until they retired. And you and I have had a handful of jobs, but the millennials and Gen Z, they will leave a job in a heartbeat if it's not working out for them. And I think that we could take some notes from them on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think there's there's some things from that generation that we could look at as maybe something not to do in the workplace, but there's so many uh, empowered attitudes out there yeah. and right now that I wish that I had either realized that that was an availability to me early on in my career as a journalist mm-hmm. or um, wish that there was more of a culture for that because I yeah. think that I might have done a lot more interesting and more fulfilling things if I if I had had the courage to say, well, I should, I could have a gap. I could go do a, I could go do a little break and, and see where this leads, but I didn't. Yeah. Right. right. Well, Kelly, thank you very much for being on the air. This has yeah. been uh, really cool. We, I don't think we've, no, we have not had a mental health professional on the air yet. Uh, so this, this is a very unique perspective. Um, well, thanks. Yeah. Pretty, pretty soon we're going to have a police officer on the, on the air. And awesome. I think that, uh, there's a lot of mental health aspects to that job mm-hmm. uh, that that I wish that our culture would embrace in the law enforcement community. So I, I plan to you know, lead with some of those questions. So. Awesome. Yes. Anyways, well, thank, thanks yeah. so much for inviting me. I've enjoyed following along on the podcast and was excited to have the opportunity to call in. Yeah, it's it's been great having you. Thank you. Yeah. This has been an episode of Work Sucks. Work Sucks is a podcast in the Lamar Communications Group. For questions or a chance to have your story featured on this podcast, email the host at brian.lamar1453 at gmail.com.